0: Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on church history. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're in a, a series on church history. This will be my final Sunday on this. Next week, of course, is our missions conference. You get to hear from one of our missionaries, Mike Schatzman. It's coming in from Portugal. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to start in Colossians. So, if you want to start reading through Colossians for our next sermon series, I want to encourage you to do that. But this is going to be the last one in our church history series. And so far, we've seen, we've been studying the early church, what historians call the patristic era from about 100 AD to 451 AD. And we saw that the patristic era was largely marked by four ecumenical councils. They're ecumenical because they're universal. They are common to all true believers in what we would consider Orthodox theology. The First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD fleshed out a lot on the Trinity and just the Trinitarian nature of our God. The most distinguishing thing that any person can say about Christianity is this idea that God became man, took on flesh as the second person of the Trinity and fleshing those things out Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct people, one essence. The Council of Nicaea was one of the first times where they brought that all together. The second council was the Council of Constantinople in 381, dealt with the heresy of Arianism and Apollinarianism. And the third council in Council of Ephesus, 431, dealt with Nestorianism, just faulty views on the deity and the humanity of Christ. It also dealt with Pelagianism. We're going to talk about that today. These are a lot of 10-cent words. Just hang, hang tight with me. Uh, and then the fourth was the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that really made clear this whole idea of what we call the hypostatic union, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ coming perfectly together in Jesus. And so we learned that um, non-persecuted A not-persecuted church is not always a blessing for the church. In the early church, we went through a time, Christians went through a time of grave persecution. Thousands were martyred for the faith. But after Constantine legalized Christianity, Christians started persecuting non-Christians. The victims became victimizers, and that was not a good thing. It was kind of a, a dark stain on church history. Today what I want to show you is the rise of the papacy going to ask and answer the question, how did the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, start? A little bit on that. We're going to see the fall of Rome. The eternal city of Rome was really actually pretty temporary when it all came down to it. You're going to see the greatest theologian of the early church, a man by the name of Aurelius Augustinius, otherwise known as Augustine. And you're going to see the mission to the barbarians. just going to Talk about this a little bit right at the beginning as we start. If you took some time and looked around this room, looked to the person on your left and on your right, most of them look almost exactly like you and me. We're very fair-skinned. Some of us have blonde hair, brown hair. Some of us are brunettes. That's largely because we are Japhethites. Go back to Genesis chapter 10. In fact, if you want to open your Bible... We'll just read one verse out of Genesis chapter 10 Is the table of nations. And from the table of nations, from three of Noah's sons, one of the girls there's favorite Bible character was Noah because he built a big boat. Uh, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from those three sons, really all the the known people groups of the world are thought to have spread out. From Shem, it was the Semites, the Semitic people, largely in Asia, uh, East Asia, down into the Middle Eastern parts of the world. From Ham, you had the Hamites, these are people from Africa, African-Americans all would descend from Ham eventually, and then the other other son of Noah was Japheth, and Japheth is where we believe uh, most of the Europeans came from. Their family root can be tra- traced back to Noah through the son of Japheth. And that's largely me, you, and just about everybody else in this room. Most of us almost look exactly alike. Uh, Any of you guys see, I had a man trip with Ethan this week. Any of you guys see the movie Braveheart? Do you notice how the gospel came to the Scots? I loved watching Braveheart, uh, because after I did, I turned to Brandy, and I said, Brandy, I want to marry you, but I'm going to marry you in secret, because I won't share you with an English lord. (laughs) And she looked back at me, and she said, oh, Jared, marry me now. Take me to be your wife. And I said, it is done. We are married. And since that time, I've been trying to keep up with Mel Gibson, so (laughs) just hasn't worked out very much in my favor got to continue working out and doing some things like that. Uh, all that to say, the Scots, uh, the Franks, the Germans, all of you, uh, most of you in this room, are what you would be considered in the early church barbarians. So welcome, hey, Yep, yeah, hey, man, you might as, might as well embrace it. The Gospel came to the barbarians. Um, the Roman Church, basically Christianity won over the Roman Empire. It was the barbarians who won over the Roman Empire, and therefore the barbarians converted to Christianity. Christianity won them over. And most of us in this room can say that we have roots in Christianity, especially uh, just from a historical Western civilization standpoint because of the Gospel that went out to the barbarians. But let 's not talk about william wallace let 's talk about the papacy all right we 're going to talk about the papacy this morning and you're you 're going to find out some very interesting things that hopefully you can impress your friends with on history. talking about the beginning of, of the papacy is a bit like sticking your hand into a hornet 's nest. Um, it gets very complicated, but it is shrouded in controversy, depending on where you start, what your family roots are, your engagement, your understanding of of what the Roman Catholic Church is, or even the experience of your friends, you have certain takeaways of what it means to be a Roman Catholic. One man said this about the early church, the story of the early church is the result of the blood of the martyrs, two testaments, three creeds, four gospels, and five centuries. And that's really easy enough to understand. Alistair McGrath is what you would call a first-class church historian. I would probably swap the five centuries at the end of that quote to five cities instead. In the early church, there were five major cities of theological influence and thought that dominated and came to dominate what was the Roman Empire. Uh, one of them is where Christianity started, which is on well, laser man. There you go. I barely get to use this laser probably because I'm drinking too much coffee and it's not working. Uh, Right over here, you would have had Jerusalem, that area of the country. This is the Dead Sea right there. Jerusalem was the first epicenter of Christianity because that's where Christianity started. It was the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they spoke to one another in tongues. Holy Spirit descended. It is the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, and Jerusalem became a major hub, a major city for the early Christian church. South of that in Egypt was a city of Alexandria, and when I mention the name Alexander, hopefully you guys are thinking the great conqueror, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered Alexandria, named the city after himself, and he built a huge library there. The reason why Alexandria in Egypt is so influential is because of the resources that have been found there and the library that Alexander the Great had a part of making. In the north, to the north of Jerusalem, modern-day Turkey, was the city of Antioch. This is the Cappadocian region. This is where we have the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil of uh, Caesarea was there, you've got Nyssa. There's three Cappadocian Fathers that talked at length, studied at length on the Trinity. Uh, they are known today for their work. This is the area where Paul did a lot of his first missionary journeys that you read about in Acts. You're going to see those cities listed in that area, and it became a major hub for Christianity as well. In the West, in North Africa, was Carthage. In the Roman Empire, Carthage was a major seaport. It was a city, and it was actually a um, uh, they battled with Rome for significance in that area. Eventually, Carthage would, in fact, go to war against Rome and against the Roman Empire. But at the time, it was a major Mediterranean city, and it was a rival. This is where we we learn a lot about Augustine, who we'll talk about again today. So you got these, uh, you got these five major cities, you got five major families, right? Like one of them's the Corleones, one of them's the Barzinis, one of them's the Stracci's. It's, it really, it really wasn't, thanks for laughing at that, it really wasn't that much different than five cities of influence, five families of influence, each one with a distinct perspective, each one had something that they brought to the table throughout the Roman Empire that, that really did influence and form Christianity into, into what it is today. The biggest of the five cities, as you well known, know, is this city right here, and today what we call Italy, it's, it's Rome. Rome came to have a significance almost right away, mostly because of the end of the Apostle Paul's life. You think about Acts and his beheading most likely took place in Rome. How did Rome become so prominent among all these cities? By far, the most influential of the five cities was Rome. Rome was the imperial city. It was also known as the eternal city. Situated on seven hills, Rome was not only home to the Colosseum, but it also had the Forum and the Pantheon, and aristocrats that lived in palatial homes that match really no other. The wealthiest men in the world uh, would call Rome their home. The statement that all all roads lead to Rome is not an exaggeration for the Roman Empire and for Western civilization. It was home to the largest, the wealthiest, and the most generous church. Even when the early church was persecuted. The church in Rome grew rapidly. Most people think by the middle of the third century, the church there had grown to be about 30,000 believers. The Roman Empire had the time known as the Pax Romana, it was the the peace of Rome. And for about 200 years during Western Roman civilization, the Roman Empire, the influence and the power that came out of Rome and the city of Rome was unmatched really in almost any other empire in the history of the world. It was the site of Constantine's state-funded basilicas. Churches began to be built with money subsidized by the government at that time. And several early church writers, beginning with Irenaeus, said that the church in Rome was founded by both Peter and Paul. We've already talked about several councils of the early church. Really, there's seven ecumenical councils that go for seven centuries of church history. But the two most important were Nicaea and Constantinople in 381. Constantinople was, was largely, it was a reiteration of what Nicaea had already declared. It was the church leaders coming together. They still had to deal with a new heresy that was out there. But largely, what the council decided was just an affirmation of what Nicaea had already fleshed out. They just went into more detail on it. And the theory was that the bishops of the churches that came together... Would form these councils in regions and in, in all other other areas where these pastors and bishops came together. In theory, they were all equal. In reality, they were not all equal. It was hardly the case. Bishops in bigger, more influential cities exercised more authority and had more power. And a really funny thing began to happen in the church, which we know nothing about in the American church which is the structure of the church began to mirror the structure of the empire. All of a sudden, the church looked more like a government entity in how it was set up than any time before. If I was going to tell you one of the most bothersome, momentum-killing, leadership-hindering systems of government, I would start by talking to you about committees, all the pointless, endless committees that often fight against each other with no central vision or mission, competing for funds where nothing gets done except a whole lot of talking back and forth and complaining. If I was going to tell you one word that churches love to hear but pastors loathe to hear, I would say democracy. And I would also say that the church is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. We are run by one divine, benevolent dictator. And he has established under shepherds to rule, to reign, to lead according to the, his word and his authority which he has already passed down to us. We don't do things against the great dictator, the great benevolent dictator's wishes. He has given us his word so we know how to lead his church and shepherd his church with love, affection, and with the truth of God's word. And so it was the Bishop of Rome who soared on the heights of Rome's influence. But remember, it was Constantine the Great who moved the capital, his his residence, from Rome to Constantinople. He set up a new city in the east, and that's where his imperial residence would be founded. Constantinople effectively created a new Rome in 330 AD. Now you had a new Rome in the east, and you had an old Rome in the West. New Rome was Constantine's power and was increased there. All that remained was the old aristocracy in the West. Remember the heresies and the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, they affirmed Nicaea. However, there was one important matter that it also affirmed. Emperor Theodosius wanted one tiny little thing resolved at the Council of Constantinople. And it said, the Bishop of Constantinople shall take precedence immediately after the Bishop of Rome because his city, Constantinople, is the new Rome. And guess who wasn't invited to the Council in Constantinople when they decreed that? The Bishop of Rome. His name was Damasus. And he objected at every level. In fact, he called it a robber's council. The very next year, he called together the bishops in the West. And you had the beginning of a split that was taking place. Damasus put it this way, The Holy Roman Church takes precedence over all other churches, not on the ground of any synodal decisions, but because it was given the primacy by the words of our Lord and Redeemer in the gospel when he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Let's let's look, look through this a little bit. This was the first mention of the primacy of Rome. And before any person was given superior authority, it was the place, it was the city that was given superiority. But it's, it's really inappropriate. I'd turn to Matthew 16. We'll get there in just a second. It's really inappropriate historically to talk about the popes of the Roman Catholic Church until we meet one specific person, and that is Leo I, Leo the Great. Before I tell you about... Leo's Achilles' heel, here's why he was so loved. Leo, in the Roman Catholic Church, was a humble, caring church leader like they had never experienced before. He was charismatic, he was generous, he gave so much. He was so generous to the poor and to the needy in the city of Rome, it was a time like no other. As a nobleman, Leo was the emperor's choice for diplomacy in dealing with political disputes. Often the emperor would call upon Leo to be a spokesman for those who would otherwise come into the Roman Empire and want to and demand uh, land or, or legions or, or whatever they were going through. He was known for his generosity. He was an ardent theologian. His best work was renamed Leo's Tome, where he argued and definitively clarified the doctrine of the Trinity in a high Christology, the 100% humanity of Jesus Christ, the 100% deity of Jesus Christ. He was a great theologian. He was a great articulator. He was a great communicator. And he had the heart of a servant. He didn't want power. He didn't want authority. He was actually a, a guy that we as church members would easily get behind and champion his cause. He personally ended the great Eutychian heresy, called it a senseless blindness, and after he came out with his declaration on it, it ended one of the great uh, early church heresies that existed at that time. When the previous bishop of Rome died, nobody argued about who the next bishop was gonna be. Everybody knew, they automatically assumed it was gonna be Leo. He had that much uh, pull with the people. He was that well-known in the city. There was no vote, there was no question, there was no argument about who was gonna be. It just went to Leo. He was affectionately referred to as the doctor of the church. There's only two people in church history that have been referred to as the doctor. Leo was one of them. But perhaps the event that made Leo so famous was not his theology, was not his charismatic nature. It was not his generosity, even. As much as just his his ironclad courage to do what nobody else would do at that particular time, probably probably the best we could date the fall of Rome, at least the beginning of the fall of Rome, would be 410 A.D. with Alaric in the Visigoths. Visigoths sack Rome, 410 AD. They went through the city, they pillaged it, uh, they took a lot of things, and it was a a game-changing day for the Roman Empire. But instead of disposing of the empire itself and the whole setup of having an emperor, uh, the Visigoths and Alaric, they just wanted their guy to rule. They wanted their guy in that position of power and authority, and so the empire lived on. It won't be another 66 years before Romulus Augustus, the last Roman Empire emperor, is disposed from the throne by the Ostrogoths. But before that, Rome was marked with a northern border just past what is now what we call the Swiss Alps. And past the Swiss Alps, as you get into uh, well north of Italy and into Europe there, there's a river called the Danube River. And that was effectively the northern border of the Roman Empire. Every people group that existed north of the Danube were called Germanic people groups, including the Goths and the Huns. Ever hear of a fella by the name of Attila? Attila the Hun? Um, I don't know if this is what he looked like. I don't know. What do you guys think? He just... He looks really mean. I don't, Do people look that mean in real life? That's got to be. Here's the deal: we don't have. When you study history, okay. Another line from Braveheart: um, History is written by those who have hanged heroes. That really is true. We don't have any primary source evidence on Attila the Hun. Every every historical piece of evidence we have on Attila is a secondary source and it's written mainly by the Romans. So how do you think the Romans are gonna uh, vocalize and portray Attila? He was their great enemy. He was one of the guys that came against them. They fought against them over and over again. And so, you know, let's be fair to this guy. We don't, we don't really know. Here's what we do know. The Romans nicknamed him the Scourge of God. He crossed the Alps multiple times with his armies. He came into modern-day Italy inflamed with fury, sources say. He was utterly cruel, he inflicted torture, he was greedy in his plunder, and he was insolent in his abuse. By the time he reached the gates of Rome in the city, the city was totally defenseless. Uh, People had mainly been starved out, because that's how you conquered a city at that point in time. The emperor had abdicated his throne. The military had been, been defeated nothing stood in the way of Attila marching right through those gates, going through Rome, doing whatever he wanted to to do to whoever he wanted to do it and making sure that his name was enshrined on the pages of history, except an old, harmless man of simplicity, well grayed in his hair, past the age of fighting by the name of Leo I." It wasn't a fighter, it wasn't a philosopher, it wasn't a politician, it wasn't a general, it wasn't a commander who came out to meet Attila at the gates of Rome. It was a bishop, and he brought 60 priests with him. When everybody else, cowered in fear, left the city, knew that destruction and pillage was coming, an old bishop looked him eyeball to eyeball, face-to-face. History records the conversation that happened that day. Uh, Leo I basically pleaded for mercy and grace from Attila. It's said, the myth is that when Leo looked Attila in the eye and talked to him, an image of Peter and Paul with drawn swords came right to his left and to his right. After that conversation, Attila took his army and went back home past the Danube River. They never marched into Rome. Leo was the guy. Leo had stuff to him. And if you and I would probably not consider ourselves Roman Catholics today, back then when Leo went to the gates and faced off against Attila and his army of Huns, I can tell you one thing, I probably would have been the first guy in line behind him. He was a strong, strong man for doing what nobody else could do. He talked Attila down, they withdrew beyond the Danube River, and from that time, the Roman Catholic papacy had been established. He was the first papa, he was the first father of the church. The mistake that Leo made was actually on the day of his, his inauguration as the Bishop of Rome. It was his first day as a bishop. He came and he preached a sermon to the church in Rome, and he appealed to the threefold gospel testimony about Peter. If you found Matthew chapter 16, here was the first one that he appealed to. I'll turn here, just bear with me. Matthew chapter 16, Leo appeals to his authority from Peter Simon Peter replied, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. We just talked about that verse not too long ago. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. He also appealed to Luke, chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, and when you have turned again, strengthened your brothers. The last verse that he went to is John, chapter 21, where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeals to Peter again and says to him three times, feed my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep. And with that, Leo said that Christ promised to build his church on Peter and on all future bishops of Rome. And folks, if there has ever been an interpretation of Scripture that's been more butchered, botched, and bewildering, Leo, God love him. He had me at hello after Attila, when he started to dissect Matthew chapter 16. He went way off into what we would call la-la land. He was on planet Mars for a little bit in interpreting this. You can forget about every exegetical, theological, grammatical, historical, literal interpretation of Scripture. Just toss it out. Leo makes these passages say what he wants to say, which is the Roman papacy holds the keys of the church. And never in a million years... Would you and I read that passage and come away with that conclusion? Never, ever, and that, Brad, somebody come up here and stop me from saying you would ever make that interpretation out of Matthew 16. Folks, it's not, Katie, bar the door, lock up the, the kids, don't do anything. This is, incre- this is an egregious error of epic proportions. And it still exists today. And for the life of me, I've got, I've got several, one of my best friends in the entire world is a Roman Catholic Christian, and I'm convinced he's a true believer, because he believes that Jesus Christ saved him from his sin. His his faith is based solely on what Christ did for him on the cross, plus nothing. Most of the Roman Catholics that I talk to about this kind of stuff, you have to be very, very careful. They really don't know what their, um, what the catechism says. They really don't know what the Catechism says about justification and sanctification in those scriptures and lining it up scripturally. Um, nowhere do any of those texts mention the Bishop of Rome. Peter was notoriously unstable throughout the Gospels. Over and over again, the Bible says that biblical leadership isn't by power, but it's by servitude. The greatest is the least, and the least is the greatest. And they got it backwards. There you have it, the rise of the papacy. Leo I, everything that the, the Roman Catholic pope wanted to become was confirmed with Gregory I. And if you study those two guys in church history, you can understand the rise of the papacy, and you can probably also understand the fall of Rome. At the same time, the papacy was rising, the city of Rome and the empire, the Roman Empire was falling. In fact, it was the great uh, translator Jerome who said that the city, Rome, that took the whole world captive is itself now taken. Eternal Rome was in fact not eternal. And refugees from Rome fled in every direction in all directions across the Roman Empire and further than that, on a little South African seaport called Hippo, a man by the name of Aurelius Augustinius asked this question, why did the Roman Empire fall? Why did the city of Rome fall? And he became the greatest theologian that the early church ever saw. Calvin wouldn't have been a Calvinist. He got his theology from Augustine. Luther was an Augustinian monk. It was after the order of Augustine. In terms of sin and grace, no one has had a bigger impact on the church than Augustine. They said that he wrote five million words by hand. They don't have type press at that point in time. On November 13, 354, in what's now known as Algeria, Augustine was born. Tommy Nelson said if they made a movie about his past, it wouldn't be R-rated, it would be X-rated. Augustine was not a guy that grew up in the church. He didn't want to be a Christian. He rejected its claims. He worshiped in a cult, and he had a terrible battle with lust. He wouldn't trust Christ until he was 32 years old. That's the life expectancy at that point in time was probably about 32. 32. His father was a pagan, his mother was an ardent Christian. The only thing that they could agree on is that they wanted to raise their child, Augustine, with a good education. So they sent him off to study in Rome and Milan, now Italy, where he found more women. He fell in love with a woman, had a child out of wedlock. Augustine could not master his passions. His passions mastered him. He found himself in a whirl of vicious lovemaking. Later on, he would write, there's nothing more powerful in drawing the spirit of a man downward as the caresses of a woman. Augustine also had a passion for truth. He was a truth seeker. He turned to philosophy. He was a great professor of rhetoric and grammar at the university, the State University in in Milan. He quickly earned the highest level degrees that could be earned and became a professor there. The person who God used the most to bring Augustine around to his senses, and teach the gospel to, was a a guy by the name of Ambrose in Milan. And Ambrose was the best preacher of his day. Not because he was super articulate, motivating speaker. He was the best preacher because he was logical. He was a very intelligent man. He brought to Augustine a logical defense of the faith. He explained things that for years and years had plagued Augustine why he didn't want to be a Christian. Milan, uh, um, Ambrose, was the man who uh, talked him through all those things. But it seemed as though the one thing that truly inspired and really shocked Augustine more than anything else, remember, he was riddled with lust for almost his entire life. He couldn't understand the monks and how they could dedicate themselves to a life of, of solitude, of singleness... Be celibate for the rest of their lives. In fact, after Augustine becomes a believer, he commits to a life of celibacy based on the example, the unbelievable model that he saw in these Egyptian hermits. The the Latin word, I believe, for desert is hermit. And so that's where you get these monks living very simple lives in very um, isolated areas of the world. He was profoundly stirred, he was convicted by the monk's personal example. One day, as he was fighting within himself, thinking about the truth of the gospel, thinking about these monks living these lives and overcoming their struggles with lust, he was walking in a garden and he heard a little girl sing a song Take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. Augustine said to himself, I'm going to take up and read the Bible. He turned to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which say this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The next Easter, Augustine was baptized with his son. Months after that, he would lose his son. He became estranged from him. Uh, weren't together by the time of his death. He also lost his mother. He was going through a deep time of grieving as he was teaching in Milan. But after he trusted Christ, he was a completely different person. And as he explored the question of why Rome fell, he wrote one of the most influential books that has affected Christian theology and ethics that we have today. It's called The City of God. It's a book of hope. That when the city that they thought was God's, Rome, fell, the city of God lived on. He gave hope for a celestial city. As he wrestled with sin and grace, he wrote a landmark biography in a manner that was not known at his time. He was uh, the first autobiographical author. He wrote about his own life, and he wrote it in the form of prayers, if you ever read the Confessions. Of Augustine Today, even secular authors and secular people will use confessions as a great example of, of what it means to pray, and as a great example that really changed history forever. It was there in the confessions that he fleshed out a doctrine of grace and a doctrine of sin. And let me just say this, hopefully in all humility. There's a really odd tendency in churches and even denominations um, Because of sin and because of what it does to our hearts, we are very prone to wander into a land of legalism and being overly pious about our lives. And the reason is is because we forget where we came from. We forget the grace of God. And usually it's a younger person who comes along who is well-educated, well-influenced in the area, He comes along and he says things that haven't been said for a while, almost always anchored in the grace of God. It was true for the Apostle Paul, it was true for Augustine, it was true for Luther. Their lives were dramatically transformed by grace, and the church for for years and years had lost sight of their desperate need for God's grace. Augustine's influence and his understanding of grace is what really transformed the early church. Augustine contributed several things. His theology was not perfect. He dabbled into purgatory. He had a a thought on amillennialism that many of us probably wouldn't agree with in his end times theology. But he talked about three things, probably more than he talked about anything else. The first was the freedom of the will. Augustine championed the thought that there really was such a thing called free will, he said it had been weakened because of the fall and because of sin, but not destroyed. And the image he came back to over and over again was the, the picture of the merchant scales. You guys know the balanced scales. You often see the images um, throughout history and, and just you're very familiar with it. He said if you put good on one side of the scale and evil on the other side of the scale, you could depict this battle inside of human nature between good and evil. But because of sin, the evil side always had more weight in it. Because of sin, we all have a propensity toward evil. We all have an inclination. We all have a bend toward doing things that are against God's will, toward going in our own way, and toward sinning rather than going in God's way, rather than holiness and living a moral lifestyle. And so evil always outweighs the good in man. The scales work, but Augustine's view was the evil side is seriously biased because of Adam's sin. He was the one who championed a phrase called original sin, that sin began with Adam. And all of us, because we are created in Adam, we have this inborn tendency to sin. We were sinful from the time of our birth, sinful from the time we came into this world, as David would say. In Psalm 51, verse 5, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, by nature we are children of wrath. Augustine believed not only in original inherent sin, but he also believed that uh, we commit sins as well. Not only are we sinful, but we are sinners because we are sinful. We commit sins because there's a root of sinfulness inside of us that goes back to Adam. One man that he battled with on this point was a British theologian, a secular theologian, by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius would argue that the scales are not biased towards sin, that the scales are always equal. Number two, Augustine talked about the nature of salvation. Not only did he develop the concept of original sin, so he's saying that our human nature is terribly infected by sin, he talked about sin as a power, a disease, and a guilt. Because of sin, we are seriously ill, and we don't even have the power or the wherewithal to diagnose our problem, let alone see it for what it is. He said, "Sin contaminates our lives from the moment we are born into this world." Pelagius said, "We are born sinless, not sinful. We only become sinners when we sin." Was Pelagius' standpoint? Augustine said, "We sin because we were born sinners." And because of this, it would take an act, a monojournistic act. This is an act of one person. It is an act of God's grace and God alone to bring sinners to repentance. It's God who must act. There is not a partnership or a, a companionship between the work of God and our own free will, but actually God is the one who gives us grace. He developed this whole world, word and, and theology called predestination. You've probably heard of it before. Augustine would go back to John chapter 15, verse five, that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he developed the nature of grace as part of his soteriology, what he believed about salvation. He concluded that the only way anyone can be saved apart From anything is the grace of God in salvation. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God's grace. Period, full stop. We are justified, declared righteous only on the basis of God's unmerited favor. Uh, Pelagius and Pelagianism will rear its ugly head over and over and over again through church history. Even today, people still dive into a Pelagian perspective that says God did his part, I still got to do my part. For me to be saved, I've got to live this life from here on forward. Otherwise, it just proves that I was never saved in the first place. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, however you look at it, it keeps rearing its head in the church. People cannot understand the whole, they cannot fathom this whole idea that salvation could be completely given to you as a gift of God's grace. God's grace. They want to do something to earn it. They want to be a part of this package deal from God. They want to believe that there is something inherently good in them that contributes to their salvation. Augustine, over and over again, he says this, you've got free will. It's a free will to sin, not to choose God. Pelagian comes in there and he says, no, that's not true. We're not biased toward evil. We have all of these ways that we ourselves can make a commitment toward God, and it's a partnership with God instead. The doctrine of grace and the doctrine of salvation was more formed through the Reformers in the time of Reformation by Augustine than it was by any other theologian. Luther simply turned the pages, looking back to Romans, to Galatians, but also to his Augustinian heritage. And what Augustine was teaching about law Sin and infinitely, what he was teaching about the grace of God. Um, Augustine, the Catholic Church will appeal to Augustine for their ecclesiology. The Protestant Church will appeal to Augustine for their soteriology. It was amazing the influence that he had on the early church. And we stand on the shoulders of a mega giant in the faith, who was years and years before his time simply looking through the Scriptures and what it revealed about God and the truth of salvation. One of the reasons why I love to stop every year in October, it's the, uh, the birthday of the Protestant Reformation in 1517, on October 31st. Tomorrow, kids, uh, Logan, take off your mask, man. Tomorrow's Halloween. Just kidding, that was just, that was just rude. Tomorrow, when you guys are trick or treating, focus with me, please. When you're thinking about Halloween, think about the Protestant Reformation. Think about the great giants of the faith who read scriptures for themselves in the original Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts. Think about all of those who died for the faith so that you can have a copy of the Bible in English in a language that you can read. Augustine was a a champion. He was one of the foremost forerunners of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's through him, it's because of his work that we have the many blessings that we have today. It was through his early work that the other reformers built on and established the systems of doctrine and theology that we hold so tightly about biblical passages concerning soteriology and the grace of God. All of us, are desperately evil and sick apart from the grace of God. None of us would ever come to salvation apart from His work for us. All of that was proclaimed loudly and boldly through this man who trusted Christ when he should have been dead. You know, we've got a lot of policies and procedures in churches. Augustine wouldn't have been able to serve as an elder here. Isn't that crazy? He's a church father who's contributed so much to us. And uh, we should be forever grateful for it. More grateful for Jesus and what he did on the cross, but extremely grateful for these figures through history. That's why we stopped to talk about it. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for our, our kids. Thank you for our families. Uh, thank you that they could save stay in the service with us this morning. Um, Lord, I, we are forever grateful for our predecessors of the faith. We are grateful for how you have worked in history through uh, flawed, sinful human beings who came to see clearly the grace of God. We pray that um, the things that they have passed down to us, the influence that they had, would be reflective of our passion and our desire to follow Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that salvation is a gift, and that apart from your grace, um, none of us have a foot to stand on. But in your immaculate mercy, and grace toward us. You showered upon us salvation as a free gift. Thank you for those who have uh, painstakingly and clearly taken time to write about the most important thing they could ever write about, which is the truth of the gospel. And I pray if there's anybody here who hasn't heard this truth, that they are sinners, they're inclined to sin, they will only sin forever perpetually unless you intervene with divine grace because of what you've done on the cross through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection three days later. I pray if there's somebody here who does not know the message of God's grace, that they will know it today and they will trust you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have next week to come back and and hear about how this true gospel is is spreading across the world. We pray for our missionaries as they drive into Tulsa, as they stay here and get their arrangements figured out, uh, that this week would just be an encouragement to them, that we could be an encouragement to them, and that our church would continue to share this gospel of your grace as we go through everybody that we come in contact with, with when you give us the wisdom and the courage to do so. We ask all these things, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.